Yeah. So when Ambedkar gets a hill to quote Bill in, right, that becomes a big problem, largely because uh, what happens is there are riots all over, right, and the, and we see what is happening today, especially when we get all the rapes around the place, and the people from the ruling party go and support the rapist, right? I thought that would happen only when it's bad enough that it happens when that uh, girl was raped in the north, right? Whether it's because she was a nomadic tribe, okay, or comes from a nomadic community, or because she was a Muslim, whatever that is, right? Yeah, but that the people from the ruling party at the center of the state, uh, at the center, right? Yeah, they actually congratulate the rapist, right? So this is a kind of culture that we have, and we're calling it a great culture, right? The same thing has happened, of course, that was out of the religion, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah. So what we have in uh, in uh, UP today, right? The Hathras case, right? That becomes even more troubling, right? Because it actually means that nobody has the ordinary people don't have a democracy, right? Yeah, and the upper caste people can dictate whom you marry and who you don't marry, whom, yeah. And when uh, the the question of the feudal Europe or the feudal India, where the upper caste men have access, the, uh, the hypocrisy is when uh, they talk about untouchability, right? But when it comes to rape, yeah, there's no untouchability over there, right? In fact, there's a person who sent me some interesting uh, historical records when the, the British uh, went and tried to attack Karnataka, what is now Karnataka, right? Uh, it was a Mysore state, yeah. And when they attacked them, there was a rape by a Brahmin man of a Dalit girl, right? And the other people advised him to have a bath in the river and purify himself, right? Now that is what is going on even in today's world, right? Yeah, so uh, one is we're talking about what's happening here in, uh, in medieval Europe, right? And we're talking about ma marriage. Marriage over here is associated with property, right? And even in India, it's not that it's not associated with property, right? It is associated with property, but it's also associated with caste. It's associated with uh, position. It's associated with uh, the whole idea of it's invested with a lot of power on both sides, right? So when you have a marriage, normally people have marriages as a kind of peace pact, which is equally bad, right? Because a peace pact that is between the two people who are not the two people, but the parents of the two people, or one is the ruler, like Alexander the Great marries uh, a person, marries somebody else, right? Yeah, he marries many women, right? Uh, that's because it's a kind of political marriage, right? Yeah, and that, the idea of the political marriage, uh, what happens to a woman over there, right? That means a woman is used over here as a political ploy between two kinds of ideas of male rulers, right? Yeah, and that's exactly what has to change, whether it's in India or it's, whether it's in Europe, right? The idea of the independent person and the idea of the independent citizen choosing his or her own destiny is not, that is something that is done, right? So when you talk about marriage, you're not talking about religion at all, right? We're talking about two people uh, uh, deciding to get married and going on and getting married, right? Yeah, and that's, if we don't enforce that kind of secularism, right, and we don't enforce that kind of freedom, right, and that's why the Hindu court bill is a very important kind of bill, 
because it liberates women, right? Um, and of course, uh, Ambedkar had to resign because there's so much of outrage against him, and he had to resign from uh, writing the constitution, right? So the idea is. Uh, people still want women to be subservient to men, right? And even upper caste women are, and that's why you have the Dalit Panther movement in India, which is actually saying, well, women are Dalits, right? Because they are not uh, what you call, uh, they, they're not uh, like the men, and the men would be called Brahmin, but the woman is just a Dalit. She doesn't have any status at all, right? So that's what we call, and that's for all the people who talk about going back to a glorious India of the past. How did this glorious India have all these things? And all the people who say that the British put them in, that's not even possible, right? Yeah, that's absolutely nonsense that we are talking, right? Which I think we need to talk about and deal with, right? Yeah. So uh, the idea of going back to medievalism, yeah, is important. If a girl were not married off, she must, if possible, be placed in a nunnery, right? So you have the nunnery, where women are placed in and uh, that's of course in Christianity uh, that's uh, something that is slowly it's respected because you do work for God or you work for the church or whatever you do right uh, you don't get a wage for it right and you are actually uh, you have you, you are actually giving up your life and whatever you do is for the church or for your order that you have yeah you have different kinds of nuns, they are Carmelites, Carmelites, they are Benedictines, they are poor clairs, they are little sisters of the poor. There are many of the organizations uh, which come up, right, where a lot of women who are not married get into it, right, yeah. Now, are they happier off or not happier off? We don't know, yeah, because the idea of sexuality and sexuality is a very strong kind of power, right, what happens and how do they uh, actually suffer from all this kind of sexual repression or uh, not having the sexual act, right? Yeah, all those issues come up, there's abuse, right? Uh, because people are human and sexuality is a very powerful kind of force, right? It's not easy to get out of it, right? Because as human beings, we also got hormones and we have uh, swings of hormonal imbalance and the normal kind of you know, sexual functions that are created by chemicals in the body, right? Uh, it was rarely possible to become a nun without a dowry, right? So that is something important, yeah? So the idea of dowry is very important and instead of giving the man, the man uh, who marries the woman the money, right? Or the daughter the money is given to the the convent or the church and that's how they become rich so we're talking about transfer of property right yeah so the church becomes rich instead of the man becoming getting all the dowry the church gets all the dowry of a woman right and without the dowry they would not accept it right uh, right uh, to be well rid of her money was piously paid and there was a girl uh, respectively settled for life it was rarely possible to become a nun without dowry in this way, the English nunneries were recruited and in part financed, at least in the 14th and 15th centuries, right? Now, after some time, uh, they don't do that, yeah, because they become wealthy enough for one. The second is people, the idea of dowry itself becomes uh, a dated concept, though 
in India it still operates, which is very funny, right? Because when a woman can work, when a woman is educated and can work, why have dowry, right? And of course, by the Acts of Parliament, dowry is illegal, but people still do all these dowry business, right? And instead of giving dowry, they give furniture, okay? They give all these kind of things, right? Which you, know, you can't fight with, right? Because that's a wedding gift, right? So, uh, of course, there are a lot of dowry deaths in India, which is terrible, right? Um, it was rarely possible to become a nun without dowry. In this way, English nunneries were, uh, were recruited in, and in part financed, at least in the 14th and 15th centuries. Whatever they may have been in theory or in the distant past, they were not in the era refugees for the poor, uh, refuges for the poor, or houses for women with a special call to the religious life. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Right, so he's saying they were not as it is today. Today, the idea of a nunnery is service. Right? But what you have over there is a nunnery, and that's exactly where you have a critique of the nunnery when it begins in the 14th and 15th century. Right? Yeah? So it's, it's not a question of people being religious or dedicating your life to pray all the time. Right? Some people do that, like you have the cloistered Carmelites, and uh, or you have the Trappist monks, that's the male uh, version, right? Who do not, uh, I don't know about the cloistered nuns, but these Trappist monks uh, are allowed to speak for five minutes once a year, right? But that's the vow that they take and they get into this kind of religious life, right? They can sing and all that, but they can't talk to anybody and only once in a year, they're allowed to talk for five minutes, right? I don't know if they've, they've, probably in a year you've forgotten how to talk, right? Yeah, and if you have to talk for only five minutes in a year and be in silence for the rest, that's a different and difficult kind of a life, right? Uh, so that's one. And then after that, you also have people who think that the religious life is about serving the poor, right? Serving the oppressed. So you have people like the medical mission nuns, right? Who are trained as doctors, right? Or nurses, right? So they keep looking after the poor, uh, the the sick people, right? There's some people who are only dedicated to the poor, right? Uh, and uh, some of them, uh, they're the little sister of the poor, right? Not very old. It's not as old as this, right? But all that gets systematized in this period, yeah. When uh, so these people are not allowed to earn any money. They're not allowed to have a school. They're not allowed to take money as a, as a job, but they're supposed to beg and earn money, even till today, right? You have them, I think I saw them in Hyderabad, and you have a branch in Bangalore, right? Where these people are actually, and they, uh, they take whatever, uh, so they take very, very poor people who are destitute, right? And they're supposed to look after them, right? Uh, and of course, it means that uh, Europe had a lot of poor people, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have all these kinds of... Uh, this is a rich nunnery which he's talking about and Chaucer also has a comment in his prologue, right? Uh, whatever they may have been in theory or in the distant past, they were not in the era refuges for the poor or houses for women with a special call to the religious life, right? They were definitely not for the poor. They were by and large capitalist, right? Yeah? And they're actually in, into uh, what you call the rich people and are very, very wealthy, right? Yeah? 
and that's today also that's a critique against the church right that the church is a pro-capitalist organization and uh, the Bible is about uh, talking about the poor people and the oppressed people and uh, the people who God is on their side right and God is always on the side of the poor in the Bible and the contradiction is that the church has got so much wealth and the church has got uh, and this is for a long time yeah the European understanding of the church yeah uh, the nun and particularly the late uh, sorry uh, yeah the records of the frequent episcopal visitations show that there was a good deal of female human nature in the nunneries and the discipline was relaxed the scandal was only occasional right yes yeah, so there's no idea of this idea of separating men and women in a very harsh manner right and uh, there was interaction between men and women right uh, whether it was physical i don't think that uh, is possible that's what it says right but the scandal would occasionally happen when a nun falls in love with a priest or a priest falls in love with a nun and you'll have a, a scandal like that right the nun and particularly the lady abbess or prioress seldom forgot that she was a lady born and bred uh, like Chaucer's Madame El Eglantine, she was a model of fashion and deportment rather than of devo devotion, right? So this is something that is important and it's a kind of interesting way of looking at what happens in the church or the history of the church or the social history of the church, right? The idea is at one level you have, uh, we already talked about the very poor priest when we talk about Chaucer's England, right? And the idea of the the change that comes about from feudalism to capitalism and what is the role that the church plays, right? So what also happens over here is the church actually is not really the church of the poor, right? The church is a uh, church of the rich people, right? And rich people go into the nunneries. If you don't have a dowry, you can't be taken into a nunnery. So that's really terrible. Right? Yeah, so you get uh, a church that is meant for the poor and it's not a, a place where people are, are poor and go to the nuns, right? It's the rich people who go to the nuns, right? And they get their, uh, uh, they get their security, right? And they've also given their donations and their land so the community gets very rich, right? Yeah, it's some kind of a community living that Chaucer talks about, uh, not, uh, Plato talks about in his Republic, right? But it's in some ways not free, right? Yeah, so it's communal living, no private property, all those things are there, right? And at the same time, there are pulls from the outside world, right? Uh, which uh, have actually donated uh, their child and the dowry to the convent, right? Yeah. The rules for dress and conduct draw up long ago, drawn up long ago by founders with ascetic ideas were very generally neglected. For more than six weary centuries, the bishops waged a holy war against fashion in the cloister and in vain. Okay, so then Chaucer's Madame Eglantine in the uh, prologue and in the Canterbury Tales is one of these people who's brought up as a rich lady. Right? And it's very difficult to change your behavior 
if you brought up rich or you brought up poor or you brought up any okay so that these are things that some of it might change but over a period of time and very slowly right so we don't change immediately and if you're brought up as an upper class woman right will you suddenly go because you become a nun will you suddenly reject all that you've been brought up into right so that's the question trivillian is asking us right and that's what you see with most of the convent over there right and the bishops try to get order over here and say that well you can't have or you can't live such a fashionable kind of life right because you have to renounce the world etc and all those laws and rules didn't really exist perhaps at that point of time and they have got a lot of letters etc and then slowly this becomes the norm right okay and of course it's still that uh, the priests and the nuns have a lot of property because people donate property they will property okay all the people who join uh, the uh, the the religious congregations right they don't uh, uh, they give the property to the organization or the order right they call orders right uh, the episcopal visitor was often defeated by a flood of shrill female eloquences the prioress complaining of the nuns and the dozen nuns together accusing the prioress till the good man fled before the storm having effected little of his visitation in vain the bishops attempted to dialogue the regiments of hunting dogs and other hounds and sometimes the monkeys which was contrary to rule the poor ladies solaced the long leisure at one okay so the other thing is they're talking about the dogs and cats right yeah uh, the author of the liberal english policy complained that the great uh, gale of venice and florence uh, be well ladies with things and compliance and spicier and grossier wear were sweet wines and manners of chaffs and the jades and the marmosets telled nifils trifles and little have away right in return for which they take away good cloth right yeah so now the bishops are talking about uh having dogs and cats okay and having pets right and they're trying to say that we can't do that because these are things which create a lot of animosity between people right if you have a pet in a house right one person may not like the pet another person might like the pet right and we must remember that these are community living projects which they have right which uh are difficult because to live with one person itself is a problem and that's why many marriages break imagine what it is to live with a lot of people and what happens when you don't get on with them or you have a real problem with them or you have an ideological problem with them right so those are issues that they learn to so this is a social formation which is interesting especially if anybody wants to work on it right you'll find a lot of stuff right of course there's also what you call lesbianism and homosexuality which we get all around the place right when many men and women stay together you have these problems of homosexuality or uh, male and female that is hom- uh, gay and lesbianism yeah so uh, those are uh, again rules there are there are rules which uh, prevent you for 
from indulging in such uh, acts, right? And of course, the, there is a scandal rocking the church today that uh, there are a lot of homosexual priests, right? Yeah, and uh, this kind of thing, and maybe uh, there are a lot of homosexual nuns also. And the question is, uh, it's about something that the uh, when you study Faustus, yeah, it's something about chastity, right? Yeah, so you're not joining the organization because uh, you've kept sex out, right? So you can't uh, join the organization. And many people try to argue for that and they say, why can't you have gay priests and why can't you have gay nuns and all that kind of thing, right? And the idea is uh, you can get married, right? Yeah, instead of joining the organization, right? And of course, homosexual, homosexuality of any kind is thought about as a sin from the Jewish times, right? So the Jewish, uh, that's part of Christianity comes from the Jews, right? As we know our history, right? In fact, the early Jews, the early Christians thought themselves of as Jews, right? They didn't know, they didn't have this idea or label that they were Christians, though they read the Bible, etc. They didn't know that they were Christians or they were followers of Christ or anything of the sort. Uh, they might have had some beliefs over, over there, but then all that comes much later, right? So the idea of uh, homosexuality and lesbianism or sodomy or any of those things, right? These are thought about as sexual aberrations, right? Uh, today, of course, uh, secular people think of it as different, right? But uh, the religious people still have a lot of problems with the idea of uh, lesbianism and homosexuality, right? Yeah, Bhavya, you have a question, please ask it. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and door, yeah, the cat and all, I mean, that's a distraction. The cat, yeah. No, no, but not in the, not in the lecture, please. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, if you have a real serious question, please ask, right? Okay, so we're talking about uh, the idea of what is going on in the concept, yeah? So when we're talking about cats and dogs, since you brought up the idea of cats, right? You have this, uh, also the very interesting kind of cat massacre, which you have in Paris in the printing press, right? After the printing presses in organization, that these people uh, pay the laborers and treat the laborers who are working for them worse than the cats, right? So the cats get uh, yeah, you can read about it. It's it's in this book here, right? It's called uh, cul the cultural resistance, uh, cultural resistance reader, right? So there's a cat massacre in Europe, right? And thank you for mentioning the cat, though I I don't really like it because we're going off on a tangent, right? Yeah, but so you have a cat massacre, and the cat massacre is very interesting because the people who own the press, right? They treat the laborers worse than they treat the cats, right? Which probably I'm doing also, right? Yeah, the kind of food that one gives to a cat, right? Of course, they didn't have cat food and all that in the in the commercial sense that we have today, right? But they, they fed the, the cats very well. They looked after them and they were treated better than human beings, right? So the workers get together and they decide on a cat massacre, right? And they massacre a lot of the cats, right? Which is terrible and cruel and terrible, but the question again is, how do you deal with this, right? How do you as a human being feel when the cat is treated better than you and you're robbed of your human dignity and your human rights and you're not even paid properly but the cat 
gets much more than you do. And you're working for the people, right? Yeah. So you can read that and talk about what, uh, what all this has because we are talking about pets, right? And pets actually create a lot of problems, especially when you have big houses, right? Yeah. And even if you have a house, uh, one person might like a cat, one person might like a dog, right? And some people abhor cats and abhor dogs, right? I had uh, an aunt of mine who, uh, whenever she came over, and I was very fond of cats, so uh, I would carry the cat and it was very uh, small, of course, I didn't understand all these things, right? She would get really very scared, right? And she would almost run away, right? Because uh, of whatever uh, had happened to her pro probably in the childhood, right? She was really scared of cats, right? So, uh, you have these, if you have a whole house, and some people are afraid of cats, and some people are afraid of dogs, and you have your birds and all those kind of things, right? These create a lot of uh, interpersonal tensions, right? Yeah, so you'll have a person saying, well, you're feeding the cat. Instead of feeding the cat, feed a human being, right? Why are you adopting a cat, right? Yeah, instead of that, adopt a human being. People don't have food to eat, right? Now that's an argument that you have and you get people who say, well, this person is looking out for the cats, right? Yeah? And, uh, of course, they don't have a justification, right? Because there's nothing in the Bible to tell you that you should look after the cats and the dogs. Though there are people like St. Francis of Assisi, uh, who is supposed to have had a very keen ear for music and copied the bird songs after he heard them. He came and noted them down, right? Yeah, so, uh, maybe that's something interesting that you might like to look at, right? Uh, and, uh, of course, you can read Conrad Lawrence, where he's talking, uh, in King Solomon's Ring, right? Yeah. Uh, in vain, the bishops attempting to dislodge the regiments of hunting dogs and other hounds, and sometimes the monkeys, with which, contrary to rule, the poor lady solicited the long leisure, right? So he's taking a very sympathetic view to the nuns, right? And the nuns didn't have enough work to do, right? And what do they do in their spare time, right? So you have monkeys and cats and dogs and you spend your time with them, right? That's what is being done over here, right? Uh, at one nunnery in the Lincoln Diocese, when the bishop came and deposited a copy of the bull in the house and ordered the nuns to obey it, they ran after him to the gate and threw the bull at his head, screaming that they never would observe it, right? The bull is a document, right? It's called a papal bull, right? Yeah, so you have a document which says you don't have to look after cats and dogs, right? Yeah, and a, a kind of a, a, a rule book or an order is passed just like the parliamentary court. This is something that the papal court does and it's called a papal bull, right? And what is uh, there is it actually has scripture about having hunting dogs and monkeys and pets and actually using your time up in a proper way as a religious person but they get very uh, irritated with it and they throw the bull out and they don't even obey the Pope or they obey the bishop, episcopal is bishop or related to a bishopric, right? The nunneries though numerous were very small. Of 111 houses in England, only four had over 30 inmates, right? Yeah, they were very small, right? And uh, uh, 
uh, that's why they're also a target, right? Yeah, one of the things that you get a target is because they're small in number, you can target them, right? We're not talking only about India, where the Muslims are targeted, the Dalits are targeted, uh, or in the United States, the black people are targeted, right? But the, the church people are also targeted because they're small in number, and of course, they have a lot of wealth, right? So both these things become targets, and also because you have the Bible which says something, and these people are practicing something else. Of course, the Bible was not written in uh, capitalist times, right? But the Bible is read in capitalist times. And the question is, who are the poor? And that's a question that is going to be asked, right? So what do you do for the poor, right? What do you do for people who are homeless, right? If you keep your cats and dogs, why can't you look after the poor people, right? So all those questions keep coming up. What is poverty, right? How do you take a vow of poverty? How do you take a vow of chastity? How do you take a vow of obedience? Now, whether those vows were there or not, I don't know. I don't know enough about church history, but maybe we can look at it and find out, right? Uh, yeah. Right. In the 15th century, these establishments were going downhill financially and otherwise. Before the Henry VIII took the matter so drastically in hand, eight nanities had been suppressed in the course of 40 years at the instigation of orthodox bishops. For example, Bishop Alcock of Ely in 1496 founded Jesus College, Cambridge in place of St. Radmang's nunnery, of which he uh, procured the dissolution on the ground of the negligence and improvidence and the desolate disposition and inconstant uh, continence of the religious women to the same house by reason of the vicinity of Cambridge University, right? The successors, yeah, so the idea is, first of all, when you're talking about the nunnery and they're talking about this Bishop Play, uh, Ile, right? I hope I pronounced it right. Yeah, Bishop Alcock, right? And he closes it down because he says, because of Cambridge University being closed by, these people are coming and staying here, right? And they're nuns, right? And uh, they go to Cambridge University and come back and the house is run in a bad manner. So it's better to close it out and have a college so that more people can come here, right? So that's an argument and that's a pro-educational argument, but I don't know whether it does a good job for women, right? And uh, this is today when we read Trevelyan and we read the position that Trevelyan has taken, there's no question about how does this become anti-women, anti-feminist, okay? All those kind of things are important, but you can see that the male hand, and the church is a male hand, uh, exercises the rights over women and how women go about their lives, right? Yeah, can somebody keep uh, a track of the time? Yeah, it's 12.14. I think I've got enough time with you, right? Yeah, uh, I've got about half an hour at least, yeah. Uh, yes. The successors of these two Cambridge scholars who visited the Trumpelkin uh, mill in Chaucer's day had apparently been paying too much attention to the nuns of Ravelgon and the very end there were only two nuns left. One an absentee and the other an infant. Right? Yes, yeah, so, so a nun is absent 
there's no nun in the convent, right? And she's supposed to be there, but she's not there. And there's an infant that's a child which is there, right? And that again becomes a problem for uh, the bishop because the bishop is supposed to be responsible for all these people, right? Um, yeah, so that's something else that you might uh, like to look at. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Saint Redigun was an exceptionally bad case, but it remains true that the nunneries of England were less useful and admirable houses of religious in the later Middle Ages than they are today. Right? So then we are talking about these houses and what is interesting is, or what is important is that they are not really got an idea or an identity of what it is meant for. Today of course they have clarified these identities because in the 16th century a lot of congregations had these kind of charters and you have to go by the charter and the rules, right? Yeah, it's like, or it's called a constitution, right? So you're talking about the constitution of various orders and it'll tell you what is the thrust of the organization of, or the religious organization, etc. And uh, uh, what, what they have to see about is the superior of the house or the mother general or the whatever that is, now they call them superiors and that's all, right? Uh, they would be called mother and father and all these kind of things, right? And uh, they would be in charge of keeping the rules and the rule book off, which is a theoretical thing, right? And they, in practice, they're supposed to be keeping it, right? It's like the judges uh, who are supposed to uh, exercise discretion, right? You can, and that's why the idea of a religious uh, superior has to have a very complicated kind of understanding of religion, right? And see how you put religion into practice, right? And where can the scripture be broken or where can it be interpreted differently in the given condition, right? We talked about something called hermeneutics, right? And that kind of hermeneutics is operant in actual practice by these women who are called nuns, right? Between the time of Wycliffe's criticism of the great endowments of the church and the onslaught of Henry VIII, gifts uh, of land and money were still commonly made, but they now went less often to houses of monks, nuns and friars than to charities and uh, chantries and schools. Right? So now the idea is there is a huge thing that changes because uh, instead of giving money to these nunneries and religious houses, you give money to schools, right? Yeah, and you give money to places where people are orphaned or whatever that is. In these latter days, wealthy gentry and burghers, in their gifts and bequests, seem to be thinking more of themselves and their fellow laymen and less of holy church. The endowment of a school was in the 15th century as useful for the education of laymen as for priests, right? And the foundation of a ch uh, chantry was largely a self-regulating <coughs> act. In a chantry, or one or more priests were paid to say mass for the soul of the founder, right? And whoever, uh, and whatever one's expectation about the next world, it was clearly a way of endowing a living monument to one's own memory here below, right? Okay, now he's talking about the hypocrisy and the idea of uh, get your memory up 
that is by having a bust or a statue or remember a remembrance of yourself right and that's what the other people would do right uh, the chantry often took the architectural form of a delicately wrought side chapel in a church with a building a small church or chapel carrying down the uh, to posterity the founder's name there's a hope a great man's memory may outlive his life half uh, his life half a year but by uh, by lady he must build churches then or else he suffer not thinking on right now when we are talking about the churches we are talking about the the nunneries we are talking about all these things right we are talking about the whole idea of the human being and how does a human being right run after name and fame right and the human being wants his name to be remembered for all eternity and that's why they donate a lot of money to all these places right and at one level the church gets very rich on it right and the other level uh, their memory is preserved right so uh, the memory of a person who starts these kind of religious organizations is something that is very important for to be remembered and to be remembered as the founder member and you have a one day where you say well this is the founder of our congregation right yeah i think uh, it's 200 years of Jesus and Mary which is just down the road here i saw it on the board that they put up right uh, there is Jesus and Mary convent yeah where uh, Claudine Tivene is the is the director right so you have that and you have them re be remembered for a long time and the photograph is all around the today this is a photograph at that time maybe it was a portrait or something like that right was something that kept things going right so we know one thing about Wycliffe over here that he is critical about all the money that the church inherits or all the wealth that the church inherits right uh, and whatever one's expectation about the next world it was clearly a way of endowing a living monument to one's own memory here below a chantry often took the architectural form of a delicately wrought side chapel in the church uh, with uh, with the founder's tomb large therein. Sometimes it was a separate building, a small church or chapel, carrying down to posterity the founder's name. There's hope. Uh, yeah, so the question is again, they are trying to make the founder of the organization uh, live beyond the organization, right? Now we talk about poets, right, who claim a kind of immortality with their lines, right? Here they are actually talking about uh, being remembered after you die and people will remember and say, well, uh, we have this place called Balwan Parekh Center. I remember Balwan Parekh because he donated a lot of money to the center, right? And his name is there and is probably going to go on and there might be many such centers or many such foundations or many such schools even, right? But what happens over here is becomes institutionalized and you get many such people around and that's why you have uh, all these colleges in Oxford which are donated by some rich queen or king right, or some rich donors or the, uh, the organizations were religious houses where people used to stay. right? That's how you have what MSU is, a residential university. right? So uh, these were residential places and then later they become colleges and universities in Oxford and the whole Oxford and Cambridge. Yeah? So you might like to uh, look at that.
Mm, yeah. So you have tombs of the founder, right? So that gets little more space and that gets remembered, right? And they pray for them, they remember them, this is their founder's day and all that kind of thing. We have that for schools, okay? All this, we have that even for our university, founder's day, etc. Yeah? The 15th century for all this trouble was a great time for increasing educational facilities and endowments. They had many schools in Chaucer's England, but there were many more on the eve of the Reformation, right? So we're talking about Chaucer's England and the time of the Reformation, and one of the reasons why the Reformation happens is not only because of Martin Luther, but it's because education has spread. Reading, a reading culture has spread, reading in the vernacular. The 15th century bishops, often worldly wise men of a good type, love to endow schools, right? So the bishops are clever people, and they're not religious people per se, that's what he's saying. They're worldly wise, they know the, the matters of the world, and then like to give money to the schools, right? So now, that's how schools are associated with churches, right? And, uh, of course, in medieval Europe and in medieval England, uh, you have the church school, the church hospital, right? Now, these are important kinds of institutes which are linked up, right? And we here Trivillian is trying to tell us that these are things that are uh, a part of the generosity of these people, right, at one level. And we talked about the idea of perpetuating your name or see that your name will be permanently remembered, right? Uh, yeah. The 15th century bishops were already, uh, often worldly wise men of a good type, loved to endow schools. So they used to give a lot of donations and a lot of money to the schools, right? So that the schools and the bishops were people who made a lot of wealth, right? They were supposed to be religious people. They had a lot of wealth, right? Because they would collect money from the parishes and all those kind of things and keep them. And uh, what they did now is a lot of them donated money and that's why uh, these chances become uh, uh, quite rich and self-supporting and slowly schools become more important than all of this, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a hope, uh, sorry, municipal, uh, municipal guilds and individual burghers and merchants increased in wealth and in family connections with the land gentry, landed gentry took pride in founding schools which would give to other boys to the town and share the chance of rise either for to be future priests and bishops or equally well to be future mayors, merchants, royal ministers, clerks, judges, lawyers, gentry capable of managing their states and ruling the country for the king, right? So at one level you have the religious people giving money for schools and education. The other is the, the rich or the landed gentry saying that, well, we've made enough, so let's put up a school so that the people of our village or of our town will be able to get education. And because they get education, they might become mayors or some official, or they might become priests and bishops. And priests and bishops were the kind of an important kind of position that they would have, right? Yeah, and of course, uh, whatever. So. The idea of closing it down to people who are poor didn't arise, right? Priesthood was meant for everybody. It's not like the caste system in India, right? So anybody could become a priest and even today it's the same, right? Of course, in India we have caste where religion is concerned and in one of the papers uh, I've written, I was talking about the first Dalit uh, archbishop, yes, something like that, 
right? And what happens is that when the church becomes a kind of a useless institution because hardly very many people join, right? You give people all these positions, but you also suppress the Dalits in the church, right? So that's something that has to be thought about. The whole idea of a, a man called Saitan Abin Clark is talking about Dalits and Christian, Christianity, right? And he's talking about how do you have uh, Dalits in the church and what happens to them, right? And uh, so this is one of the things that I put up in my paper, right? Uh, which was by a, a nun, and please read this. It's a first Tamil autobiography. It's called Karka, right? Yeah, and uh, it's in English. I taught in Ferguson College. That's how I came to know about it. And it's important because it's talking about, and I, I actually met Bama when she came to Pune University, to, uh, the women's studies uh, called her for a lecture, and I told her, well, I'm teaching you, uh, teaching your text in school, right? And of course, uh, you can see how casteism operates. Not one of my students came for the lecture, right? And they asked me, in fact, why are you going for it, right? Why are you going for Bama's lecture? She's a Dalit woman, right? Yeah, so this is in the mentality. Right? And this is very sad. Okay? And uh, she was a very, very educated woman and I learned a lot from her lecture. Right? Because she was a teacher in uh, one of these fantastic kind of convent schools, uh, Loretta House, one of those kinds. Right? And she leaves all that because she says the one time, well, I'm watching, working for the, uh, the, uh, the children of rich people. Right? When my, my own uh, people of my own caste and my own tribe and all my people actually suffering. Yes. Yes. Yes, you have a question. Yeah, I can't hear you. You put off your mic. Yes, please. Yes. If you have a question, please ask. Yes, please ask the question. Yeah, what's the problem? Yeah. Is your mic not working or something? Yeah, what is the question? Why do you ask a question and... Yeah. My microphone is muted. Ah, I'm muted. I'm muted? Okay, sorry. Yeah, that's because somebody put it on. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fine. So, uh, the important thing is what happens to the idea of the church. Right? What happens to the idea of... Uh, 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 the idea of class, right? That is, you're allowed to let poorer people uh, into the church. You, they can become priests. They can become nuns. Okay? They have a, the system of dowry, but at a later time, the dowry system goes away. So, uh, it's open to everybody, right? Yep. One. Uh, and of course, the idea is that uh, you also have schools set up by private people and by the church, right? So the private people would donate so that the, the, play, the, the students from their community, uh, I don't think it was women, right? I don't, I don't think so at all. Because that is something that AAA is not talking about, right? Because they didn't have women judges and they didn't have women mayors, right? But the idea of education becomes important, right? And I don't know how many uh, women went to school, right? Though at some point of time, maybe women went to school and they got educated and because of that, they could change the world, right? But what is interesting is, 
uh, people actually had schools because they thought that look, this person might become a mayor, this person might become uh, a minister, this person might become a burger, okay? He'd have to have an official job and then you'll have to learn the language, right? That's Latin. You'll have to learn the law, you'll have to put all these things into practice, so you might as well send them to school. And these are people who are uh, landowners, okay, rich landowners who are doing that, right? Yeah, you have a lobby in Maharashtra uh, where the rich landowners or rich farmers who have uh, uh, given a lot of land or donated a lot of land and institutions to the government, right? Uh, not really donated to the government, it's, it's, a private, uh, it's a private trust. But they've started a lot of colleges and schools so that people can come up. Right? So the idea of education to make people aware is something else that we have to think about, right? Because we are talking about an age where people actually are suffering, right? Yeah, they're suffering from this idea of uh, uh, they're actually suffering from the idea of the patriarchy, right? The idea of class, the idea of the feudal mindset, right? And slowly. They are also changing because of capitalism coming in. They are also changing because you have the systematization of the routine in the workplace. That is the apprenticeship to the chief uh, kind of uh, master, right? Yeah. So that's something else that happens, and we're looking at how all these things totally change in a slow kind of manner, right? So. When you have these kind of medieval schools, they're first of all done as parish schools or they're done by the priest, right? And then uh, later a lot of money is given because education requires money. You can't not, uh, at least you need a space, right? Of course today in India and in Baroda, we're talking about these places where you have uh, zero budget educational institutions. Right, which are on the road, right? And some big and rich people sometimes give a, la uh, a piece of land and give uh, a, a support for making building a building, right? So that instead of having it on the road, you have it at the place, right? So that's exactly what are happening. Uh, even here, it's uh, constantly happening, right? That people donate a lot of money for institutions because their name will go on, right? Now the question is, that's important because. Uh, that helps uh, infrastructural development for schools, etc. Right? Uh, England, in fact, acquired a fine system of edu secondary education. Many of these schools were endowed to teach the poor. Gracias, right? That is, without any taking any money. But the poor who benefited by them were not the laborer in classes but the relatively poor, the lower middle classes, the sons of protégés of small gentry, yeomen and burghers who rose through the schools to take part in the government of the land, right? Now, they're saying that, look, it's not the really poor who they educate, right? And one wonders why this is the problem, right? In India, it's a caste problem, and the real Dalits never see schools, right? Yeah, it's only the the kind of middle class people or lower middle class who actually goes, go to school, get educated, whether uh, of caste or class in India, right? Yeah, so that's something that you find. Of course, Gujarat is supposed to be uh, a state where 
there is uh, the maximum amount of Dalits who are uh, educated, right? Yeah, but of course that doesn't translate to anything because when it comes to power, they don't get jobs, they don't get, uh, and this is the condition that is prevailing today, right? Yeah, so you might have a degree, but yeah, you go on getting more and more degrees because that's how you keep alive and that's how you keep doing something. You don't, some meaningful activity, but that doesn't translate into work and work power, right? Uh, Yes. Thus, were prepared the social and intellectual changes for the next century by the training up of a new middle class of scholar, scholarly laymen and scholarly priests, for both had their part in the great movement, uh, movements that shortly took place. Grammar schools were not, as used to be thought, the result of the English Reformation, they were the cause. Right? Yeah, so the idea of the grammar school is not because you had a restoration, right? You have a grammar school. But the grammar school happens because somebody puts up a school, uh, oh sorry, the restoration happened because somebody puts up a school and a school starts asking questions and these people slowly become powerful enough to ask questions and have the change of what the system is, right? Now that's something important and that's why you see that in India people want to ruin uh, the university, they want to ruin the school so that you don't get people to ask questions, right? Yeah, so asking questions is a very important part of education at all levels, right? And the most serious questions you ask, the, the worse it is for the politicians, right? But it is something that education has to do, right? You can't say, well, that's a Dalit and let her get raped. And you have the, uh, the government in power coming out in support of the rapist, right? What kind of education is that? No education, right? Yeah. When you have the CAA protest, right? All the people who are coming out in favor of the CAA, NRC and the NPR, which all, everybody knows, are horrible laws that are motivated to uh, see that some people don't even become citizens and they've made what a government calls uh, uh, these kind of homosakas, right? That is, they are just out of society and they don't have any rights, right? So that's the move of the CA and NRC and all these things, right? But you, when you get a, a rally or a, a protest against it, right? Uh, you have all the people locked up, right? But all the people are protesting. Uh, I've never seen this. This happened only in, in India for the first time. Right? Whether it's the Katwa case or the uh, uh, Hathras case or even the CANRC pro, uh, protest, right? You have people who are going on and taking out a procession supporting the government, right? Why is that necessary? The government is a majority government, right? The majority, the government is passing the law, right? Why do you need a procession of people? who are going to support the government. I can't understand this, right? Yeah, and even that's what's happening in, B in uh, UP today, right? The people are coming out supporting the rapists, right? They're definitely what you call upper caste people and it's a caste war and they don't care about the, the life of the person. The life of the person is not important at all, right? So uh, this is something that of course 
is to be thought about, right? And the question is, if you have schools, a lot of people have come up, right? And the idea of schooling and education, that's why it's supposed to be in a secular or a socialist kind of mode, right? It's not about getting money, right? With privatization, and that's why the NEP has become, come under so much of criticism, right? Because privatization means somebody is looking at education purely to make money, and you can't teach people if you just want to make money, right? Yeah? Whether you take individual teachers, or you take institutions which are private and are only making money, right? I'm not saying the other institutions are not making money, right? Yeah? But when your institution is only to make money on education, you don't spend for books, right? Some of you have probably gone to some private schools, right? Yeah, because that's something that has happened. In my day, of course, there were only the, the convent schools and the government schools, right? And people would choose the convent school of the government school, right? Now, how many uh, private schools were there? I don't think very much because it's not easy to run, okay? Somebody might donate a piece of land to you. Somebody might donate money to build buildings and you can keep building buildings, uh, collecting funds and all that kind of thing, right? But then running the school becomes a problem because you have to pay people the salaries, right? From the watchman to the gardener to the teachers, okay, and the principal and all those kind of people have to be paid, the librarian, the librarian staff, the peons, right? So all that is not even easy to maintain and that's why that's where it becomes semi-private and the government comes in, right? So the land and property might belong to you, but the uh, the upkeep of the school, even the upkeep, uh, uh, after some time the government has to pay, otherwise you'll find that your, your staircase are falling down. What do I do? You, it needs money to put it back, right? Yeah, so that's where the government enterprises become so important, right? Uh, so when we're talking about the idea of the schools coming up, right? And why did more schools come up which admit people across all castes and all, across all classes, right? Now that's something that becomes, uh, for the English, it becomes something very important because they are actually the people who set up all these schools and what happens in the grammar school and what, uh, we'll talk about that because education, as we said right in the beginning, is one of the techniques of the self, right? So when you change education, when you have education, okay, what happens in education is you get a more liberated kind of self, right? Yeah, you go and learn things about what other people are doing. You think about what is there in the classics, right? Like the next chapter would talk about Virgil and Homer and all those kind of people, right? And you start thinking about, and that's when the Indian uh, national education, uh, education policy, NEP 220, right? Becomes so controversial because it's trying to actually see the lower caste and lower classes of people don't really have education, right? And uh, yeah, you're talking about lateral entry and you can, uh, people can leave anytime. Those are not very good things that we have because the idea is that education will never be reached down to the poor people, the lower caste and the lower classes, right? I think I have to uh, wind up because it's already become uh, almost 60 minutes, right?